church and school are the places you're learning and they hide all these things away. It makes it almost impossible for those people not to be abused. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Hecate, and this is Finding Okay, a healing podcast for survivors of sexual assault and any and all abuse. Today, I'm happy to bring you part two of my interview with Caitlin Bellamy. Go check out part one if you haven't yet. You will be missing a massive amount of fairly critical context. Caitlin is a professional actor, young adult fantasy author, and variety streamer currently living in Orlando, Florida. She is an autistic, polyamorous chaos witch with a specialization in cozy comfort vibes and making other people feel safe. Caitlin is also an ex-Mormon and a survivor of an abusive marriage. Today, we'll be continuing our conversation about what it was like for her growing up in the Mormon church and how purity culture contributes to abuse. And now it's time for... Trigger and content warnings for this episode include the following. Sexual assault, rape, trauma, abuse, PTSD, religion, spirituality, cancer, death, and purity culture. Please check in with yourself and make sure you're all right to continue. So the listener question is is basically uh, its curiosity about Mormonism and how cheerful all the Mormons always are. That, uh, that this person knows, and they wanted to know, why is that? What's the story with the Mormon cheerfulness? I have actually heard that a lot my whole life. Yeah. I have heard quite often, Mor- every Mormon I know seems like really happy. And that's true, and it's one of the reasons that gets so confusing to like have struggles or trauma within the church, is because we are not, there's there's a different mentality from like the Catholic saint mentality of like, and even the stereotypical Jewish mentality of where you suffer, we are going to suffer and focus on the suffering. Instead, more of the mentality is we're going to focus on the life and mm-hmm. we're going to focus on the joy. In fact, we are told not to wear crosses or symbols of the crucifixion because they symbolize Christ's death and we are supposed to celebrate his resurrection and life. Okay. The, the very core of it as a Christian, as a Christian religion is focused on life and living as opposed to sacrifice and dying Mm -hmm. in fact it's one of the things that it's one of the reasons i have such a complicated relationship with it is all the cannot do's of the church there's this thing called the word of wisdom that is essentially the no coffee no tea mentality that that the church is famous for no coffee no tea no gambling no smoking no drinking yeah all of those things are things that cause addictions and take away your agency. And the whole point of the church is free agency and and being allowed to make your own choices. Which is why it's ironic when they back things like dismantling Roe v. Wade, because it's the whole opposite. Um, but that's one of the reasons I get mad at purity culture is we know, we understand when we're growing up why we don't drink, why we don't smoke. We're like, okay, great, amazing. It's because it can cause all these problems, all these things. Mm-hmm. Why we don't have sex is just the Lord says. Like, it's just a very, whereas I feel like if they raised these kids having the same, letting them make the choice, letting them make the decision saying, hey, we like when people do this, but here's why. Let's talk about it honestly. It's not that big a deal. Like, it's it's this thing that you do. Like, I feel like they'd have a lot more, uh, a lot fewer issues with with that. But 
But yeah. but I digress. It's a whole that's one of the struggles is every Mormon I know is fairly happy with their lives. They have chosen to be there. There's a lot of community building. There's a lot of you should be happy that you are growing up in the one true church kind of mentality. Focus is on the family. Focus okay. is on living your life and the best version of your life you can. However, is when it bleeds out into what if the best version of my life is alternative? <laughs> like, so most of the Mormon families you see who are living within those traditional family roles are incredibly happy. When I was growing up, I had a really, really good home life. And I loved my parents and I loved my siblings because family stability is a huge focus of the church. Having time with your family, like a night set aside for game night or movies or family dinners every night, every week, even when the parents are both working or busy, is like really, really important. Mm -hmm. I grew up taking family vacations every summer. I had family home evening every week where we would just like watch a movie together or whatever. And I loved that. I loved growing up in that idea. And there's a lot to be said for people do notice that Mormon families are often very happy, very mm -hmm. healthy, very well adjusted. But then you get into the darker side of that with, for instance, most church leaders say Sun Monday nights should be family home evening. It's the night the church has set aside. We have no events on those nights because Monday night is assumed you're going to stay with your family. Well, my dad worked evenings, so we had family home evening on Sunday nights. And people shamed us for it. Mm. Because we had our night of the our night, a different night of the week than the rest of the church. And that's the issue. It's like we're still adhering to the uh, the message, which is have a night set aside for your family. We're still doing this. We can't do it in your time frame though, because we have different needs than you do. And when people in the church have different needs that break the standard. That's mm. what it gets. Like mm. I couldn't fast. I was medically not supposed to fast. And so when I stopped fasting, people would, well, you should just suffer through it. You should just deal. No. Oh, that's dangerous. It's medically dangerous for me to fast. My mom got huge migraines and she would end up in the hospital mm. and she was not supposed to fast. She was told not to. And people, really, really uptight people would get judgy about that. Like, that's not – so for a church that says a lot of don't judge, love everybody, there are some very vocal minorities of, of people who are they're, – they're a smaller population of the church, but they are loud about it. They are really loud about the judgy. And unfortunately, it – because there are so many people who are, again, that, that joy of – even when you lose someone, there's the what's called the eternal perspective of this is just a part of the life. There's a life after death. Mm -hmm. So – I'm not done yet, and I'll see them again. I'm allowed to be sad now, but instead I'm going to celebrate the life they had. My, all of that. Mm -hmm. That's just a constant. The idea of it's predetermined when you come here. The life before life. The pre-existence. Suggesting that you were born and selected for this time period for a reason. Instills in you from a very young age a chosen one mentality of, I, I was chosen for this time anyway. Mm -hmm. I was, I'm here for a reason because I'm strong, because I'm kind, because I'm whatever. You're very much raised with an idea of you are the best for this time period. These are the trials that were selected for me. Exactly. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that deeply ingrained. And again, not, not necessarily things that I think are bad. It's why I struggle and I still defend a lot of church ideals. 
And most of that is the community and those things. Mm-hmm. It is when you hit those walls of the moment I deviate, I am shunned, that I start to have a problem. I'm like, oh, nope. Yeah. Well, I, I loved when you were talking about the focus on uh, autonomy and, uh, you know, and, and maintaining that and then the way that kind of like breaks down with purity culture. And it just yeah. it just kind of like had this this like click moment where it was like, oh, my gosh, how beautiful would it be if instead of this silence in this purity culture thing, if they would actually educate and say, hey, here's all this information that you need in order to be fully autonomous and choose to not rape people. Yeah, it would be To to be a good person, here's the information that you need uh, and the the self-control that you need to practice. And the tools uh, you need. Yeah, and here's how you autonomously choose to be a good person. Yeah, yeah. But the, the I think it gets I think it gets mixed up. I think it gets mixed up in this. There's a there's a a church ideal of avoid evil or the appearance of evil. Hmm. For instance, it is even if you're not drinking or smoking, don't go to a place that they drink or smoke. Not because you might be tempted, but because other people might see you and think you're drinking or smoking. Ooh, that is problematic. Really, yes, and and it gets confused. The original, I believe the original concept behind something like that is the idea of if you are being a good person, the sight of you being a good person encourages other people to do the same, right? Mm -hmm. So in theory, great, fantastic. But what they decide is evil is a a weird shift. For instance, my... uh, when I was younger, I had a lot of male friends. They were my best friends. And I, even if I had no feelings for them whatsoever, I was not allowed to be alone with them before I was 16 because 16 is dating age. If I was 15 and wanted to go to a movie with my friends, there had to be – it couldn't be an even number of men and women. I couldn't sit with a boy. I couldn't – any of those things because that's an appearance of dating. Mm. And I was like, okay, but if people aren't gossiping, like they're not supposed to be, it wouldn't matter, would it? But it does. Um, it's, there's a lot of judgment nested in the freedom of, of everything culture that is very unfortunate to watch and to understand from a distance. It's, it's very uncomfortable to understand from a distance that, um, that people report back. Mm -hmm. Like my mother-in-law used to show up on our front porch because my ex-husband and I weren't at church that Sunday. Mm. She would show up at our door. Like, why weren't you at church? And we're like, because we had a really long, rough week and we wanted to spend some time alone together. And it was unacceptable that we had missed church. It's the forced spirituality on their time frame that is so painful sometimes. And drives people away from the church in droves. Whereas so many core concepts seem like such good ideas. They're poorly executed and poorly enforced. And that's really, really shitty, honestly. Because the idea of autonomy, the idea of you idea of you should be able to make your own choices is shut down at every turn a lot of the time with shaming people who do make choices mm-hmm. you don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah. It's the hate the sin, love the sinner mentality of I'm going to be a good person and stay in your life while telling you constantly I disagree with your life. Mm-hmm. That's not it encourages judgment too. Like yes. the, the whole appearance of evil thing, like that mm-hmm. that demands that you be looking for evil and judging. Mm-hmm. That requires that of you, exactly, uh, and encourages that. And then again, that's yeah. why those young men think they're being the heroes by pointing out to me yeah. that I am being immodest. Yeah, 
that policing aspect. Mm-hmm. And because unfortunately, people who take missions, like church proselytizing missions outside of the states, understand very intimately that modesty is relative. Mm. It's it's not a it's not a holy concept. It, it it's not. It is a relative concept. I had a friend who went to some tiny, tiny islands that only like six thousand people in the world speak the language, and all the women are just topless. Mm-hmm. And they are taught before they go, you are not allowed to tell them to put shirts on. You are not allowed to get in the way of their local culture. Don't do it. So that changes a lot of their lessons because modesty is different there. It's mm-hmm. not the same thing. Interesting. So the people who've been on some of those missions understand that. The people who haven't don't. And and it's it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so your morality is relative. Your morality is relative. Uh, but you're treating it like it's like it's ironclad. Your morality is flexible, but you don't want to admit that your morality is flexible. Yeah. It's when it suits you. And that's very it's very confusing and it's very painful to try to exist in. Because it's true it's like by the by the laws of the Bible, any woman who remarries is an adulterer, right? But in reality, most Mormons I know, again, if my husband had died and I had no kids and I wanted to have kids with my new, most of them wouldn't judge. There's still a little bit of a stigma associated with it, but most of them would understand if that's why I had had sex with another, with another man, you know? And yet they have trouble wrapping their own heads around those concepts. Like from what I've seen across the board and especially what I was dealing with during my own divorce, because it is considered a last resort to get divorced. And everyone has to sign off on it when you're in the church, by the way. You have to write a letter to the prophet saying, please unseal us. We don't want this anymore. So when our Mormon couples counselor and our stake president, which is essentially, there's like the bishop, and then above them, there's like the stake presidency who watch over several bishops. And yeah. And our stake president both looked at our situation and went, yeah, no, there's no saving you two. Mm-hmm. Like we had to have church members sign off on us getting divorced. Wow. Uh, yeah. Because it is considered such a sin in certain circles, to get divorced, despite anything that was going wrong. I'm glad that was granted to you. Me too. Oh, me too. Yeah, it was, and it's a whole thing. Mm. I do want to ask about... Um, ask anything. If you are, you you can say, like, I don't feel like getting into that, but I I do just want to, like, talk about missions for a second. Yeah, go nuts. And, uh, and I'm curious what your feelings on them are like that practice if you'd asked me this a while ago i would have had a very different answer because i'm realizing more and more that yeah the idea of white christians traveling to other countries to spread the word of god is kind of fucked up because it's 2022 and the internet exists and people know if they want to know if they want to know about religion they know you don't have to come to them however the aspect of it i do believe in is a couple of things i always agreed with One, the timing of when men specifically go is when they're in that age where it is they're at the most risk for being idiots. They go from like 19 to 22. And that was, there was studies done about how like, because men mature slower, that men who've been on missions grow up a lot during that time frame because why? They have to learn to cook for themselves. They have to learn to clean for themselves. They have to learn to do laundry for themselves. They have to learn how to behave like adults. Very quickly, because they have to in that situation. There are 
room checks. There are schedules to keep. There are all these things. And men who've been on missions often mature during those missions in ways that you don't get other places because boys will be boys and they let boys get away with a lot of shit. But it's like, I agreed with that. Like my little brother grew up so much on his mission. Like when he came back, like he'd learned how to deal with his anger issues because he had to. He'd learned how to deal with things that he'd never had to deal with before. Hmm. He came home. He was like, hey, do you have this recipe for this thing? I'm like, you cook? He's like, yeah, I was on a mission for two years. I was like, again, you cook? You didn't just get McDonald's for two years? He's like, no, I learned how to make this because I missed it. And mom couldn't make it for me because I wasn't allowed to come home. Like, like, that's like, so like, I agree with that idea of there's a lot you learn. Like, there was a lot for me I learned doing the Disney college program. In my mind, they're very similar because I came here. And it was a go-between, it was a middle ground between in college, just doing stuff, and real world where I have to pay rent. It was like a nice Venn diagram where the two met. That's how I feel about a lot of church missions. The thing I like about them are the service missions. A lot of the time women go on these more than men. The service missions are less about spreading the word of God and more about where needs us. Where do we need to go build houses? Where do we need to go help on farms? Where do we need to go help families survive natural disasters Mm -hmm. where do we need to go do this and i love that as a concept because it is in theory very um people who want to get involved and help other people and don't know how to do it that's a really nice way that the church has a system set up famously i like that idea me too i didn't didn't know that service missions yes the only ones i've ever heard about is the proselytizing which i have a huge Mm -hmm. fucking problem yes and this whole time i was thinking Wow, what if what if there were some kind of like volunteer program kind of gap year setup where like you have yeah. that same experience of leaving and interacting with a different culture or society mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being self-sufficient and you know and all of those good things at that point of, in your life. Yep. But without the proselytizing and colonization. Yes. And that's where I that's exactly my thought because I love the idea of I'm going to learn these cultures. I'm like like my dad, my dad met my mom on his mission. They met in Germany. Oh, wow. The, right? Like, there was no reason in hell both of them should have been. Like, the only reason they got married and ex- and that I exist is because my dad was on his mission. It's the only reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but he learned so much about the culture. I grew up in a household where every now and then German was just spoken. My siblings learned German so they could talk to my dad in German. My dad was spoke fluent German. Like, he, like, I grew up in a household that focused on other cultures because my dad got to go to another country for two years mm-hmm. and had to live among them. I heard, st- I want to travel because my dad talked about these other countries he got to visit. That's, I love. Mm-hmm. But the idea of, I'm going to knock on your door and tell you about my religion is very uncomfortable to me. And if it was more about the cultural aspect and more about the learning and more about the experiencing other lives and lifestyles and I feel like the world would be a more well-rounded place if it was standard practice in humans to take two years in between high school and college and go visit another country. Yeah. And go be in another place. And go, like, those are the things I, those are the parts I agree with wholeheartedly. Like, my uncle went to Brazil, still, still speaks fluent Portuguese. And is the reason why when my family goes home, we go to this Brazilian restaurant and they bring the meat to your table on a sword. And like, he can speak with the waiters. And that's amazing to me. I'm like, that's so cool. I struggle with foreign languages. I feel like I would need to be immersed to learn. Wouldn't that be cool if that were the reason they did it? Yeah. Was to understand the rest of the world outside of your walls. Yeah. Because church members in other countries do it too. I've met 
missionaries from France who come to America for those two years. And they're fascinated and freaked out by us. Uh, <laughs> what the hell is happening here? Rightfully um, so, I gotta say. Yes, correct. I've met people from all over the world who were missionaries who came to our ward at church. And I was like, where are you from? The Netherlands? That's really cool. That cultural exchange, I feel like, is so much more important. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. I truly believe that if the church's goal is to proselytize, convert, whatever, you do a better job of that by just being the kind of person people want to be and be around. The listener question about happy, cheerful Mormons. I had people in high school who wanted to learn about my church simply because I existed. I never tried to teach them. Hmm. They wanted to know more about my church because they saw how happy I was. And in their heads, they went, every Mormon I know is really happy. Maybe I should get me some. Would I be happy if I were Mormon? Yes. Exactly. That is the train of thought. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and not that I think just going out to try to convert an entire populace is a good idea. I think presenting the best version of yourself and letting people decide if they want to be a part of that life. It's like for me when I when when Sway was trying to convince me to be a Twitch streamer, I watched how successful and wonderful he was and how great his community was. And I went, would I be happy doing that for myself? Mm-hmm. Yes, the answer is yes. But he didn't preach to me the virtues of Twitch yeah. streaming, our Lord and Savior Twitch. Like it was a big difference. He encouraged me to do it because I had expressed interest in doing it. Yeah. Big difference, you know? And 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 so I think there's I think there's a key step missing in that I understand the mentality of this thing makes me happy. This thing is this thing that I believe is going to keep my soul safe for eternity. I should share it with the people I love so they too can be happy and safe. I understand that. Same reason people talk about CrossFit, yoga, (laughs) therapy. Like, this is this thing that's made me happy. I'm going to tell everybody else about it. But instead, I am much more likely to believe someone if I just watch them have energy and, and when I ask, they go, oh yeah, I do CrossFit. They're like, really? Should I come? As opposed to, guys, let me tell you about this CrossFit gym. I'm going to bring nine of you with me. I'm going to block the door do and tell exactly. you everything. <laughs> no one exactly. leaves. <laughs> exactly. Because can you imagine? Can you imagine if people still showed up to your doors like Avon calling, but like for other things like, hi, hello. I notice you drive a Plymouth. May I interest you in the word of Honda? I would very much like to make you sell your car and buy a Honda instead. Because I, okay, but I like my car. It works for me. Okay, but, but here's why our cars are better. Okay, but I don't have the money or time to invest. No, let me tell you why our cars are better. Okay, are you going to buy me a new car? No. Okay, what? Like, it would be weird for Mm -hmm. anything else. But we've come to expect it from religion. Uh, between Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, and it's God. not normal. Um, and I do genuinely think that just by being good people who are there, mm-hmm. being the best version of yourself, they would have a much better, better time. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I struggle. That's why I struggle so much, because I also know the stories about the first responders on scene at Hurricane Katrina was the Mormon church. Because we are taught to uh, prepare for any disaster, and we have like storehouses full of supplies for anything. You can also, you can volunteer to go work at the Bishop's Storehouse, which is like, we're packaging dry goods. We're all these things. We're making sure that they are stocked and prepared and labeled. And we know when they expire and we know when they're, you know, so we're prepared for any emergency. We are taught from a very young age to do food storage and like emergency storage in our homes for emergencies. So we're okay. So we're self-sufficient. And so we can help other people who may need us during those times. 
Yeah. And frequently we are the first response. I say we, cause I can't pull, I'm not a member of the church anymore, but I can't pull myself out of that mindset. Yeah. The church is regularly the first responders in a lot of these situations and not from a proselytizing standpoint, from a genuine, we are here to help standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, please give me more of that and less of the other shit, please. Yeah. And that's what gets confusing and frustrating for me and why I struggle to, like, I don't consider myself a Mormon anymore. I, mm-hmm. Tattoos, drink, swear, all the things. Um, it's those things that I struggle to pull away from where I'm like, you guys are so close to getting it right. You're so close. Mm-hmm. You're doing so many things right. You're doing so many things right. But then also so many things wrong. And it's it's frustrating. It's it's painful yeah. to watch and live through. Because my my instinct is still to defend a lot of parts of the church. And I have to remember, I'm not defending the parts that are doing I'm not defending the parts that are supporting the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I'm not defending the parts that made it possible for me to be assaulted by my own husband. I'm not defending the purity culture or the mentality of women are in charge of stopping everyone from sinning. I'm defending the community and what it could be and the parts of it that I saw Mm -hmm. growing up, you know, and the good parts that I saw that I want more of in life and uh it's hard it's yeah. also one of the reasons why i never spoke up is because i was always so worried that i would hurt my friends and family who were still in the church by choice and i was like you know what that's not what i'm doing though and that's not i got lucky and i grew up around some fairly open-minded members it doesn't mean all of them are though and mm-hmm. as a majority a lot of them are not and uh there's a huge difference there Huge difference. It's hard to separate sometimes, though. I appreciate an answer that acknowledges complexity. Oh, all of uh, mine. All of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I appreciate your honesty with that. So I had originally, when, when we had started talking, I had thought that you had exited the church by choice. I hadn't realized that you had been excommunicated. Mm-hmm. How was it being forced to leave the church? I would imagine that that was uh, that that it would be really uh, really upsetting, and that it kind of would have been like being lost at sea, uh, all of a sudden being cut off from from all of these support structures and community and, and just everything. Like so, this this foundation that you had had your whole life and having that removed. Can you talk about that and how you got through that? Honestly. Um... You would think all of that. You would think all of those things. But I was relieved. I, it was explained to me, essentially, that when you're excommunicated, you are no longer held to the standard of the church. That God will forgive your transgressions a little easier because you are not being held to the same contract, essentially. You are released from your end of the contract. Okay. And... And I, as someone who had been on the brink of figuring out who I was and was struggling with all of that in that moment, felt more at peace than I had in years, knowing that I could make my own choices in a way I hadn't ever been able to before. It was, I was more worried about the embarrassment. My family desperately wanted to see me rejoin the church and be rebaptized into the church as an adult. 
my father, I know, regretted Wait, you can the fact do that. Yeah. Oh. Um, you can be baptized. You can join at any age. So after being excommunicated, you can... If you go through the repentance process and, and prove you are worthy of living the church life again, you can go back. Oh, yeah, okay. You can go back. Yeah. Um, you can, you could, I could have gone back at any time if I'd wanted to. The biggest struggle for me was trying to explain to my family without explaining to them that I didn't want to. And that is not ever a conversation I actually had. It's just something they eventually kind of figured out. Because for a while, I would seek peace and comfort at church. But alone. I moved here. I moved away from everybody. I moved to Orlando right on the heels of my divorce. I got separated from my husband and moved away from school in like October, November of 2011 and got accepted in the Disney College program and moved out here in January of 2012. So I only had a couple months at home figuring out myself and my life. And then um, moved here, found the, the local church building. Every now and then I would go sit in the like foyer, the lobby area. Where they have speakers so you can hear what's happening in the sun, in the actual chapel. And I would listen to just sacrament meeting. It was just, they actually had a special church ward for Mormons who were working at Disney. Because they know we can't pick our own hours. So, whereas mostly it's Sunday during the day, they had the three hour whatever. They also had a Sunday evening session at 8pm. That was just a 45 minute sacrament meeting and nothing else. Just that. 45 minutes, you're done. I was like, I can do that. So I would every now and then go listen. Sometimes I didn't have the energy to dress up cute in my Sunday best. I would just wear jeans and a t-shirt. I would sit by myself. I never got to know anybody. And I was okay with that. Because I felt out of place still. But I knew every time I was going, I was going for me. I was not going because anyone was watching me. I was not going because my parents were asking me to. I went for me. And that was very comforting to know. I was like, okay, this may still be part of my life, but I'm not sure yet. But I can pick. And then I went less and less. And every now and then I would feel the need to like, I'm stressed. I'm having a panic attack. I need to go somewhere I feel comfortable. And I would go and I would sit and I would listen. And then I would leave. Or I would drive by that we have a temple here, which is a whole other thing. And I would just go sit outside it and just like be in the space where I sometimes had comfort and where I felt like I was home. But I never really felt the need to go reinvest in the community or the anything because I was finding other pieces of me that I'd lost. Mm -hmm. I was getting reinvolved with theater. I was loving my job at Disney as a character attendant. I was auditioning for shows. I was dating new people. I was meeting new friends. I was all these things. And uh, slowly but surely, the parts of me I actually wanted back came back. I found other ways of addressing my spirituality in, in witchcraft. I found other ways of praying and connecting with a higher power on my own and building a community of like-minded people on my own without that. And uh, eventually my family stopped really asking if I was going and uh, sort of started accepting that I wasn't. And every while every now and then I get into a little bit of a thing with my extended fa some of my extended family members about church stuff, most of them just haven't said anything. And I was like, okay, if I ever choose to go back, it's it's on me. I won't because there's a lot going on there now that I'm like, no, thank you. Um, but it was comforting to know that I was no longer expected to meet the standard that had been set forth for me. And I never had that before. I had never had the freedom to make my own choices without the fear of divine retribution before. I was ashamed of being so relieved. Mm -hmm. Until I wasn't. I then was more ashamed that 
my dad never got to rebaptize me because I know he wanted to, but he stopped bringing it up. Mm-hmm. I was more ashamed that when my little brother gets married, I will not be allowed at the wedding. That's painful. But my older brother wasn't at my first wedding because he was not a worthy member of the church at the time. And I got over it. So my little brother will get over it. <laughs> and uh, it was things like that that just slowly fell away. And the realization of without the societal expectation from the church culture of society, I found the pieces that I liked and was able to keep and let the ones that were hurting me go. So while there are a lot of things I miss, <laughs> um, I miss being a camp counselor at girls camp. I miss some of the weird inside jokes that you only get when you grow up in the same religion as someone else. Some of the the moments of this feels like sisterhood and whatever and like all of these things. I found ways to find similar versions in other places. And the belief that I can find better versions of those things for myself. I'm basically looking for a coven. Like that's like that's I was like I was like listen, a lot of the a lot of the same spirituality things I was looking for. I've been able to connect with a lot of people about about my own spirituality and craft and like all these things with my friends. Like I like my husband now is like he knew that rune work and like straight and like my tarot were like becoming really important to me. And so like I was doing this fitness test for work and he like designed this strength rune that he put on my shoulder for me that like and he explained what all of it was and like all these things i was like that's so sweet like that's like he took and accepted that it was like right that's part of your journey right now i'm going to participate and like every tarot deck i own was bought for me by somebody else who respects and accepts and wants to be a part of my journey like that's huge for me i was like okay i have this community great amazing beautiful yeah it's wonderful and so yeah it's the lack of structure is still hard to this day sometimes there are parts of the church structure that i miss there are parts of the community that i miss even years a decade later but i found ways to replace or upgrade them um myself and it's not a thing i feel the need to go back to for a long time i assumed i would but i really don't think so and that's actually okay with me and it it didn't used to be i was relieved but assumed okay this is my gap years and then I'll come back. And then I just didn't. And I was like, you know what? I'm actually good. Like, I'm good. This is where I live now. I like yes. it. <laughs> I like it here. I'm fine. Like, I never, I never really liked it before. I just pretended I did because everyone around me didn't. I didn't want to feel broken. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm very curious. Is there a fear or a hatred of witchcraft that exists within the Mormon church the same way that it exists in other christian sects no um it's not a thing that it's not really a thing that i realized was a real thing because we just don't talk about it it's not really a thing they talk about at church uh like it's it's really it's really not addressed it's really not addressed or like treated like a sin or like treated like a whatever and like it's weird because like my sister is now married to like a norse pagan who was like raised in the church and there's like a weird ideal from the idea that like, at least with the people I grew up with, I have shifted this into if God created a lot of different people, why would he not create different ways to communicate with them? Like the ideal of like, you are allowed to feel more comfortable in certain places or certain things or doing art or doing whatever is kind of in there. It's in the mix. Um, and so like for me, my craft being my art for a long time, like I grew up doing arts because of the church. 
because it was this great outlet where they went, she's going to be good at this. And I went, yes, I am. There's a lot of artists and there's a lot of singers and actors and all these things. As a matter of fact, a lot of big name actors and singers were raised in the church. Christina Aguilera, Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, like all raised Mormon. Um, Chris, Catherine Heigl, like you just kind of gravitate toward the arts. The idea that that God put all these things on earth for us to learn and enjoy from is very close to a lot of, I'm finding spirituality in the flowers and in the earth and in the whatever rituals. There's a lot of ritual in Mormon church. That's a lot of what's happening is, is it doesn't feel like it, but I'm stepping back and realizing, oh, these patterns, these whatever, that's a very ritualistic idea that these things have to be in place in a certain way to make this happen. So I think it's an easier leap than people realize. I was never taught to hate it. I was never taught to shun it. I was never taught that it was a sin. I was never taught that it was real. It's like a practice. Interesting. When I've tried to go back to school, boy, if I had the money and time, I would go finish my degree right now. Um, But I switched degrees. I switched to an anthropology degree. So I was fascinated. And I was taking this magic and religion course. I still have the book somewhere. I was reading this paragraph about witchcraft and about that, like, conceptually and historically, witches were just more in tune with the seasons and more in tune with the, like, all these things. And I was like, oh, me. That's me. And I texted my sister and I was like, it's me. And she goes, yes, it is. Wow. I was like, huh, interesting. Like, I, like, I was, I was never told, I was never told, don't, don't go down that path. I might have been, and I brought it up to like a bishop. If I had been an active member of the church and I was like, I think I'm a witch. He might've been like, you're not. Um, but, <laughs> but it was never really addressed, you know, it was never like taught as a thing that That's was real. So interesting. I, yeah. there's so many sects where a lot of the conversation is, you know, like if it's talked about, like it's, there's still like yeah. in some of them reference to the thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And then yeah. focus on like witchcraft is real and they exist and they are working against you and they're evil. And never a thing I heard. And- As a matter of fact, there were, there were a couple of like super, super religious members of, of my childhood who were like, you can't even read fantasy because it's going to encourage whatever. Whereas a literal yeah. church bookstore sold copies of Harry Potter. Why? Because Harry Potter at its core was a story about good triumphing over evil, yeah. which was like a good concept. And so like, it was that thing where it was never like, like, <laughs> like literal a Jesus Christ metaphor, like built right into the freaking book. So yes. Um, and problematic author aside, uh, well, um, we've talked let's, about that. Um, yeah. Yes. She who shall not be named. <laughs> shame that those books just popped out of nowhere and no one knows who wrote them. It's it is. Mystery, it is. Great mystery. Um, but the core concept of good triumphing over evil was mostly what I was raised with, mm-hmm. which is in theory a good thing. And so, yeah, I was never really told to not participate in fantasy or that it was the work of the devil. As a matter of fact, Brandon Sanderson who wrote the Mistborn trilogy and all these things, big, big name author in the fantasy world, Mormon. And my sister played Dungeons and Dragons with him at BYU. Like, that is a thing they did there. Um, Okay. I played D&D at SVU at my Mormon college. It's not as much a taboo there. I've never once had, I had professors playing with us. I never once heard, this is satanic, this is evil, you're summoning spirit. Never, not once. Um, And that's one of the reasons, right? And it's one of the reasons it shocks me when parts of the Mormon church feel so backwards because Mm -hmm. they seem to be doing so many things right, you know? And it it gets confusing where I'm like, they were so 
progressive in so many ways. I've never once heard that. And then they do things like there's a trend of Mormon girls celebrating the overturn of Roe v. Wade on TikTok, and it's the most cringe thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, well, I want to punch all of you in the faces. Um, like, it's that. Where I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? Yeah. I'm, I'm struggling to justify those two pieces of this culture and upbringing, and it hurts. And uh, so I was never told. I was never told that it was inappropriate in any way. It was just not treated like a real practice, religion, or, like, concept. Mm-hmm. So it was never Not like something to worry about. Exactly. Like, sure, if I if my if my parents had come in and I was having a whole ass ritual, probably they would have questioned me. Um, <laughs> had some questions. Had some, yeah. had some some follow ups and some thoughts. So uh, the goat's blood. <laughs> so where did you get the goat? A. Uh, B. <laughs> Please clean it up after C. Let's talk about why it's not appropriate. Uh, <laughs> in that order, it would have been. Where did this come from? Why is it on my carpet? What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> that would have been the order of importance. But like, like they never told me video games were the devil. They never told me any of those things. Like I grew up with a PlayStation in my house. Like I like none of this. And so what I hear about like, and so I wonder sometimes. I'm like, what if I discovered this about myself when I was younger? What if I'd realized when I was younger that what I was doing was ritualistic? What if I'd realized that I was ritualizing my craft as a writer and an artist and an actor and all these things? Mm-hmm. Would it have been a problem? Would that have been another thing I had to struggle with? Would it be a thing I feel guilty about now? Because I don't. I've never felt guilty for transitioning into a witchcraft state of mind. Ever. I feel I'm so embarrassed glad that you haven't feel, had to deal with I've that. I've never had that, that guilt or shame. I've had embarrassment every now and then because, like, there are skeptics in my life and in my family. I think it's because I grew up with um, my grandmother on my dad's side was a was a practicing witch and a psychic and like a pretty big deal in her communities. And when I was younger, she hypnotized me out of my fear of the dark. And my parents let her. They let her do. I asked if she could do that because I was sick of being afraid all the time. I understood at a young age that there was something I couldn't fix myself. My mom was a skeptic because things didn't work for her. Mm. My mom was a skeptic because she'd tried aroma. She had chronic migraines her whole life. She'd tried aromatherapy. She'd tried reflexology. She'd tried meditation. She had tried all these things and they kept not working for her. So she was a skeptic because they didn't work for her. She watched it work for me and she went, I'm very glad. Great. The moment lavender essential oils as aromatherapy worked for me, she bought them for me in droves. She was like, this is a thing you need. This is a thing that works for you. Great. Take it. She accepted it immediately. Immediately as a fix. She was like, great. Fantastic. We're good. I dig that. Um, it's evidence-based. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and so, acceptance like, of new knowledge and information. Yes. She never told me it wouldn't work for me. She was like, it doesn't work for me personally, but it might work for you. It's like, great. Amazing. Thank you for that caveat. Like, you know, and I feel like the same thing would have been held true with, like, maybe it's because I grew up in theater. Maybe it's because my church had a community theater program and there's a little bit of ritual there. There's superstition and there's whatever and there's patterns and habits and all of that is witchcraft. Um, everything, everything about sports and theater is based in witchcraft. It just is. I, I studied this and I have a lot of thoughts, but so yeah, I don't, I don't think it would be a huge problem, but yeah, like it, like it's a little, like, I can't tell my older brother, like, yeah, I'm a practicing witch and have him not scoff at me, but like, that's because he scoffs at a lot of the ridiculous things I do. Scoffing is better than holy water or fire. Exactly. I'll take scoffing. Scoffing's fine. I'll take the scoff. It's fine. That's fine with me. I'm good. 
after that, when you were embracing all these new things, you were getting that, you were finding a new practice, you were connecting in community uh, in different ways post Mormonism. At what point did polyamory, like, what was that journey like? How did, how did you move into that? That's like, it seems like that would be a big uh, change or adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It it still is. Um, Because as I mentioned, it, it still feels like a trap sometimes. It still feels like a mistake because I've been trapped with that before. I've been literally, it was used against me. Um, It's been a, it's been a bit of a shift. So, so uh, my, my now husband brought it up before we got engaged because he felt it was one of the reasons he was, he waited so long. I wanted to get married. I wanted, it was important to me because I was sick of feeling like I was living in sin. That was a genuine thing. I still felt like, by not being married, it was raising too many questions for my family. And I was mm. I didn't know how to bring him home and be like, yes, this is my boyfriend of eight years. We're just, he's here, he's staying in the room with me. Like, I didn't know how to cross that bridge. And I was very sick of it. So in a lot of ways, we got married for practical reasons and for guilt-based religious reasons. But uh, he brought up before we got engaged, he was like, I, I think I'm polyamorous. Like I, and I don't want to make you feel trapped. And I don't want to make you feel like I'm marrying you and then being like, great, let's see other people. So like before we get engaged, I want to talk about this. And I was like, you know what? It makes you happy. Go. I wasn't planning on participating. In fact, I only said yes in the first place because Cody has severe depression. Like I've lost both parents to cancer and I have begun referring to Cody's depression as terminal depression. Because his bad days behave exactly the same as my parents' bad chemotherapy days. Mm. Where all you can do is survive and exist. Nothing else. And as with most terminal cancer patients, one of two things will happen. Cancer will take you. Or you will outlive it and be in remission and die of natural causes. But you will always have cancer that has the potential to kill you. Mm. That is how bad Cody's depression is. It could take him someday or he could outlive it but he will always have it as this thing that could kill him. And uh, having watched at that point, both parents pass away. I knew two things. I knew one, I didn't want either of us to have to be alone. Me, if I get either of the cancers that killed them, or him, if he loses me to cancer, or me, if I lose him to depression. And two, I was willing to do anything to make sure his depression didn't win. If this is a thing that it takes to make him happy, I was willing to do it. It was a bit of an adjustment for me to pull myself out of a mindset that had so been focused still on I am only complete and whole if I am married. And it took meeting my long-distance partner, it took me meeting him for me to go, oh, maybe I'm going to participate. Maybe I need someone. Maybe I can't do it all myself. Huh. Okay. And the shift came, the shift into full acceptance of the lifestyle literally only became came because I found someone who could help with the burden of me existing as a person who was trying to heal and a person who was trying to find the best version of myself. And this new guy knew more, knew, knew and understood different parts of me than my husband did. And that was mm-hmm. fascinating to me. And what's interesting is so many people I know who have left the church have found themselves in polyamorous situations. Because the shift is, especially for those of us who don't have families or kids yet, or aren't planning on it, but you grew up with such a family-centric mentality, we're looking for families. 
We're looking for ways to make a big family. Interesting. In an alternative way. I love that. Right? Like it's, it's, he is my family and in a, in a very real way. And I genuinely hope that my husband finds a partner who is his family at some point. I want that for him. I want him to be able to find that. But it's, it's very interesting to me, the shift from, oh, you're going to be, your whole job in life is to take care of just each other, to I'm a more whole person even having multiple people take care of each other than I was when it was just me and my first husband. I'm a more complete version of me like this. Like, um, but it's still one of those things. And I'm like, I'm, I've accepted that my family probably knows and or will know soon. Don't know that I can bring him home to meet anybody. Um, don't, don't know that I can take the poly partner home. Not sure how that'll work. But it's easier and easier to accept as my choice and part of my life because I'm healthier and happier in a lot of ways than I was in my first marriage to just the one person. And, uh, and it's weird. It's just weird. There's still, there's still these twinges of guilt for the stigma of the type of relationship, specifically coming from a staunchly religious upbringing. It's weird. It's, it's weird, (laughs) honestly. And what's weirdest to me is there's a history in the church of polygamy. And it feels like, again, with the moral relativism and the ethical relativism, if the prophet came out tomorrow and said, hey, polygamy is now the commandment and the standard again, people would be on board. I would no longer be considered a sinner. But because it's not, everything I'm doing is considered inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, well, that's, that's hard to wrap your brain around. And it, it kind of sucks because I would very much like to introduce my partner to people. I adore him. Like, you know, I'd love to be able to be more myself at family gatherings. Sucks not being able to, honestly. But I do that partially to make them comfortable. Because the relationships I do still have with my family are important enough to me to not just throw a firebomb into on purpose, you know? It's hard when your full true self is considered a firebomb correct (laughs) yeah yeah so i wanted to ask about creativity Mm -hmm. and uh and your work as as a creator as an artist Mm -hmm. as an actor as a writer Um, chaos (laughs) and uh yeah and how that intersects with your healing oh yeah um, so I, I grew up around creative folk. Um, my uncle was an author. My mom worked for him. My dad is a painter. Did glorious work. Oh, man. I always wanted to be everything. I wanted to be everything in the world. And uh, I settled into the arts. It's, it's like I've been performing my whole life. I've been on stage since I was three years old. But I really started focusing in on performing as a career when I was like 11. Everything else kind of shifted away, and I I had found myself doing these shows, and they were the highlight of my life. <laughs> and the weird thing is, I because I grew up in an area where, and a a lifestyle where the fact that Mormons don't get like piercings or tattoos or color their hair wild colors means you're actually very castable as an actor, ridiculously castable, in fact. When I was hired at the Disney College program, they full-on admitted that they like hiring Mormons because they already fit in with Disney look. They don't have tattoos. They don't have piercings. They're not going to show up to work drunk. For me, 
my shift into accepting who I am as it aligns with the arts has been very difficult because I know by getting tattoos, I'm ruling myself out of certain roles. By becoming who I am, I have cut off certain parts of the arts that I was always waiting around for. And that's very hard because I, I, I have, I have this and I'm planning on getting more, which means I am, have accepted that I'm never going to be a Disney princess. I have accepted that I'm never going to be a certain role at the parks because they can't hire me with this. They don't allow a cover-up stuff? They do. It's just a lot harder to manage, and uh, they tend to still not cast people around it because they have to provide the cover-up then, and it's expensive. Oh, okay. Because if they're asking me to cover something up, they legally have to provide that tool. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. So as I learn more and more about myself, my books have kind of shifted to reflect a lot of that. My self-insert character has grown more than I thought and is going to be her own books now. And uh, and I read the version of her she was at the beginning of the series, who was just supposed to be the love interest for the main character, and instead has spawned a whole fan base, a life of her own, a destiny of her own. And looking at the timeline of when I wrote these, I didn't realize it at the time. I did not realize that's what I was doing. I did not realize that I was writing Lies Journey to reflect my own, that I changed her character path and arc and goals and intentions as I realized I wanted different things out of my life, or I was Mm -hmm. more accepting of changing, or I was whatever. It was not conscious. It was not a conscious decision. The parts of myself I pour into my art are never on purpose. They show up anyway. I do not set out to put parts of myself in my work. The work just takes parts of me. I don't outline, I don't plan, I just am a conduit. And I felt like that for a long time. It's one of the reasons I talk about my writing being my craft and my art being my craft. It's because I don't plan it that way. It just happens. It just comes out. The book that I was writing in which, mild spoiler alert, my self-insert character is Lai Blackroot. And her father is the pirate god Farron. And um, the book that I was writing when he hands over the crown to her is the book I was writing when my father died. And, uh, and I didn't plan it that way. I didn't do it on purpose. It just happened. Mom. I did not plan that. And he passed away four days after I finished the book when I was reading it to him in hospice care. And it was the most painfully poignant thing that ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> Because it was the book in which I was letting her make her choices without him. Yeah. Uh, or about to. And and then all of book four, she is kind of making these decisions on her own. And that was the first book I had to write without my dad alive was book four. And, 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 uh, and that was not on purpose. So instead, I think my healing does its job by itself. And my art takes things I'm not even aware of in myself and my circle and my universe and just puts them. Yeah. It's also why book five is so hard for me to finish is because I'm wrapping up this part of my story that has been such a big part of my life for the past 15 years because I started writing that book one in high school and it has been so connected to the parts of my life that changed and has reflected the parts of my life that changed my entire metamorphosis is in those pages and it's very hard to wrap that up 
and move forward into the next phase of my life where I am my most authentic self, where these are done, where the me that I was when I started writing them with both parents finishes writing them with neither. It's, it's hard. It's weird. The version of the book that book one is and ended up being, I started writing when I was brand new, a newlywed. Um, I changed the whole story around and uh, those timelines line up perfectly in a weird way. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what to do with myself when that's over. I'm hoping the art will tell me because I don't fucking know. <laughs> Which is surreal and bizarre to think about that I'm not off. I'm often not in control of my own art. It just kind of does. I am the pen. <laughs> I'm just the pen. No idea what understand. ink is coming out. No fucking clue. Like no. I so yeah, it's. I have been the brush. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But because I am an emotion-based writer, I can't force myself to write when I'm really depressed. My emotions are my art a lot of the time, and they come out on the page, and I can't force myself to write through bad depression. Mm -hmm. can't force myself to create when I'm in a dark, dark place. It's one of the reasons I started ritualizing my preparing to write. The candles, the music being just so. Doing a tarot read before. How I arrange my desk. Like, all of these things. My desk became my altar because this is where I needed my magic to work. Mm -hmm. Was at the desk. Because I couldn't be in a bad place when I sat down to try and write. It makes sense. Like, yeah. if it's a conduit-like experience. Exactly. Like, making sure that. Exactly. Making sure the line is clear. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, and that's been that's been it's been a weird journey to to figure out, honestly, and to discover for myself how to make that line clear, how to make that conduit work when and where I can. Because I can't always force it, but sometimes I can make sure I'm in a right headspace. Or I can try. But it's weird. Yeah, it's like I said, I regularly will take a step back and and see the the trauma and healing path unfold in the in the books without any of the readers necessarily knowing that's what I'm going through or being aware of the situation behind it. Not being aware of myself sometimes and then going, mm -hmm. oh shit, like, what did I do? Why did I do that? Interesting. <laughs> cool. Great. Awesome. I'd love to know about how the autism diagnosis has oh, intersected God. with your healing. Oh my what God. What that journey has been like, uh, unmasking and stuff like that. Painful. So you know how you gaslight yourself? Oh yeah. Full stop. You know how you gaslight yourself? Um, yeah, it's super fun. Um, the feeling of, well, if I had known this earlier, would I have blank? If I had known this earlier, could I have thus and such? You know, there's, so much of that. The autism diagnosis, it was actually, um, it was Sway who said the most helpful thing in the world. And I clung to that desperately because I was texting him as like, I'm getting paperwork. And I was like, yeah, I, it's official. It's this. I feel broken. I understand if people don't want to deal with me now. And uh, he was like, you're still who you were. You're just a little more defined. And I broke finding ways to fit who I am or my journey or how I have to heal or how I reacted to things in the past you know, within this new definition that I'm building. Because everyone's definition of autism for themselves is different. There's a reason it's called a spectrum. There's a reason it's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. There's a reason it's more complicated than like asthma 
which has like three variants, but that's it. Like, pretty much, here's like four different triggers for most asthma, and then you're good. The same two medications in these inhalers will work for almost everyone with asthma. Autism is not that. And then I also have the comorbidity with I also have ADHD. Yay. I need a structure. A structure will kill me. Help. Um, Relatable. Right? It's awful. Um, And, uh, but I've realized it has helped to know as I'm healing that I am not broken. I just didn't understand myself yet. That's been huge because things like trying to figure out why I still panic about sexuality things, why I still this and this and this. It's because autism teaches you to learn through one of two things, repetition and pattern, or the violation of that repetition and pattern. You learn how to fear or hate or whatever or panic or worry when something disrupts that and your expectations are damaged. More and more I'm learning most autism triggers for a lot of people in adulthood are Things that don't seem traumatic to anyone else, but that traumatized their idea of the world when they were younger. And for me, a lot of how I interacted with sex was both of those things at the same time. It was an establishment of a pattern that was also traumatic. And it's, it's, it's hard enough to break down now. I feel like it would be even harder if I didn't realize that I was autistic and that I, if I didn't have an ironclad medical reason to be struggling so much right now. I would have broken down a long time ago and just given up. As it is now, I struggle with a lot of things that I have to now doubly clarify with my husband. I'm like, hi, I'm having a communication issue. I'm going to need this to be clearer. It's caused a lot of struggle. (laughs) But it would have caused so much more if I didn't know And I was just not sure why I was not understanding. If I was just lost and felt stupid or broken or whatever, like I did for so long before. And none of the needs were understood or validated. Exactly. Knowing and accepting and understanding that you have different boundaries, walls, or needs than somebody else is liberating and painful. It's exhausting knowing you have to work twice as hard, three times as hard, five times as hard as everybody else to do normal things. But it's validating to know you are not broken for struggling. Other people go through this too. Other people also struggle with, hey, I don't understand this basic human concept. I'm so sorry. It's not wrong. It happens to a lot of people. For a long time, if you don't know this about yourself and you just feel like you just feel like, hey, I'm stupid. Like, I, I'm not listening hard enough. I'm not. I'm not paying attention hard enough. I'm. I'm not smart enough to deal with human conversations. That's so much harder to deal with than nope, autism. And it's mean to me sometimes. I can beat it. I just have to like work a lot harder to get through. It's. 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 It's for the D and D fans. It's mental and emotional rough terrain. I can still get through it. I just have to take twice as long. Because when you're in D&D, your movement speed is 30 feet, right? But if you're in rough terrain, it's only 15. I feel like autism is mental and emotional rough terrain sometimes. I will get across it in this communication. We will be able to have this conversation. I will get where I need to go. It's just going to take me a little longer. It's a little harder for me than this ranger who ignores rough terrain by default. 
Like that's so it has helped. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, I'm a nerd. Um, it's it's one of those things where it's like, hey, hello, I uh, I'm allowed to struggle a little bit here. I'm allowed to struggle, and I I consider myself lucky that I grew up the way I did because like. Whereas my family struggled with understanding that, like, maybe their kids needed therapy um, because it was just not, again, not a thing that was talked about or dealt with. I grew up with my mom having chronic migraines, right? And so mm-hmm. she had special needs when she was having a bad migraine. I grew up as a small child being taught, you are quiet when your mother is sick. You turn the door handle to close the door. You don't just slam the door. Mm-hmm. You leave the TV on at, like, five. It was non-negotiable. You are quiet. Because it'll make it so much worse if you're not. And so I learned to be very respectful of people who were sick. Mm-hmm. Really early on. I learned as an adult that not everyone had that. I remember my ex-husband's, our nieces and nephews, we were in their, at their place for Thanksgiving one year. And I was like, I am sick. I need you to let me sleep. And these children who were the same age I was when I was learning to be respectful of sick people just came barging in the room anyway. And I was like, what the hell is wrong with these children? oh, your parents just don't just, they don't have discipline the same. They don't think that sickness is a real reason to be gentle with someone. Understood. You all suck. I learned that more and more that they just didn't think that illness was a real reason to like go easy on someone. Yeah. I was like, that's horrible. (laughs) But like, I've had to start kind of reminding myself. It's harder to do when it's you. Um, But I've had to remind myself that, okay, how would I have treated my mom if she was having a bad sick day? How would I have treated my dad if he was having a bad sick day? Okay, I have to be allowed to, even if it's in my head, yeah. even if it's an autism day where I'm very low functioning that day and high struggling that day, you I have to treat it. Grace. Exactly. I have to treat it with that, like that, like the migraine. I have to close doors a little gentler. I have to make it darker in the room. I have to deal with it. Like I have to treat it seriously yeah and and that's a hard lesson to learn but i'm also really glad that it's happening at this phase in my healing journey because i'm learning the two things simultaneously which means hopefully on the other side of it i will come out with good safety measures in place for future trauma because weirdly having to learn them both at once they're going hand in hand in a weird way where i'm associating my healing with learning the autistic ins and outs I'm not learning them separately. I'm learning they have to do with each other because they do. I'm not going to process information the same as everybody else. I'm not going to process emotional trauma the same because I translate emotional pain as physical pain. It is a sensory disorder. It actually happens that way. Yeah. I can be in pain physically when someone yells at me. Yeah. Without them ever touching me. That was actually a thing that my husband and I got into once before, before I knew the diagnosis. So I didn't know how to explain it to him. And I went months later and I explained, oh my God, this is why this is happening. But like I, neither of us knew and it caused this big problem where he was mad and in my space and angry. And he has never laid a hand on me, not once. Never even come close. I am not afraid of him hitting me. I'm not afraid of him ever becoming abusive. But I was responding as though I was. I was responding as though I thought he was going to hit me. And it broke his heart. And it scared me because I didn't understand why I was doing that. Mm-hmm. And months later, I'm delving deeper and deeper into this autism diagnosis and doing research on my own and realizing that it is a common thing for 
people with autism to translate again emotional trauma as physical trauma and i like ran up to him i'm like babe i figured it out he's like what i was like why i shy away when you yell it's not because i'm afraid of getting hit it's because this and he was like huh like and he adjusted he goes out of his way to not raise his voice because he knows it physically hurts me and he's like like blew my mind can't do it He's like, can't do it. Same thing happens to me. And I hadn't made that like, I I was relating it just entirely to PTSD stuff, but there is like a physical like response thing. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. And autistic, uh, autistic responses behave differently because that's one of the problems with it as a, as a disorder is it is a sensory disorder. Mm -hmm. We process the senses differently. They get mixed up. So you can, it's for instance, why you should never like when you're a kid and your parents try to pressure you to do something you're afraid of right mm-hmm. autistic children process fear as pain they're in physical pain when they're afraid mm-hmm. but you don't know that because they're not actually being touched and they don't know how to explain it to you they yeah. don't know how to explain that they are in physical pain being up high or going too fast or being in a room with the snakes or whatever like whatever their fear is mm-hmm. that's something you can explain when you're that young and you don't understand it yourself. You just know that you're not okay. And I just knew I wasn't okay. And I didn't know why. I was like, he's never hit me. He's never even come close. This is not a problem with him. I'm not worried about this. I'm not even having any flashbacks from other men. Like I'm not, I've been a, I've been emotionally abused in a lot of ways. Haven't really been hit, but I was reacting like I was. I was reacting as though I thought I was about to be smacked. Mm-hmm. It took me forever to figure out why i was like oh my god so like that was enlightening for me and it's helped me break down a lot of other stuff so like again i'm i'm grateful the healing journeys are kind of intertwining because i'm rediscovering myself anyway for the autism reasons but rediscovering those healing parts of myself as i break down a lot of these barriers i'm hoping the fact that they're going hand in hand means they'll both be stronger together in the future you know that's that's the hope. <laughs> it's like when you're raised bilingual and then you like spend your whole life being able to speak both languages. Like I'm hoping that I'm practicing emotional bilingualness. Um, you know. <laughs> one of the one of the things I was talking about before we got started with all this was that the idea that purity culture causes too many unknown unknowns, right? Like it's too many learning gaps. I think that's true of more parts of our lives than we realize. Like with the autism diagnosis. If you're raised in a society where it is not acceptable to talk about your meltdowns or to have them, and instead you're just taught to mask them instead of delving into maybe why you're having them, it causes these gaps in knowledge and emotional knowledge and how to function as a person. You are taught how to function within society instead of how to function as a human. Two very different things. I think we need to just, as a as a people, figure out ways around that. Figure out ways to um, be more open about the things that are going on in our lives. Mm-hmm. Good, bad, whatever. Because so many of these problems could have been solved if, or might never have happened to me or to others, if we were allowed to be more honest. Mm-hmm. If we were allowed to acknowledge, hey, this thing is happening that makes me uncomfortable. Is that allowed to happen? Hey, I'm having a freak out. I don't know why. 
Please someone help me through it. Please someone help me break it down. Instead of any of these things, questions, doubts, anything being seen as signs of weakness, Mm. because they're constantly seen as signs of weakness. Having to go to therapy is seen as a sign of weakness. Having to go to a doctor, having to be on antidepressants, having to be on any of these things is seen as a sign of weakness in both sexes, but especially in men. And, and I think being able to talk about the reality of your own personal situation and journey without fear of judgment or repercussion or shame would fix a lot of the world, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Because I cannot imagine how much further along in life I would be if I had known these things about myself 10 years ago. Fuck, five years ago. Can't imagine. And uh, genuinely, I, I, think, I think the fewer emotional and mental learning gaps that people can garnish in life, the better. Like, like honestly. <laughs> because uh, the bottom line is it cannot be all down to people's parents. We as a society need to set that up. Yeah, because, well said. Because, again, my parents were really good at what they did. But even they didn't know what I was or was not picking up at school. And I got really lucky. There are too many parents out there who are genuinely neglectful or abusive, who society has not set up children raised in those lives for success. Because when church and school are the places you're learning and they hide all these things away, it makes it almost impossible for those people not to be abused. Yeah. Or taken advantage of or put in dangerous situations. Yeah. And that is unacceptable to me. The number of people currently with the state of the world who are arguing, well, their parents should just this, that who have ceased to acknowledge that maybe there are some home lives that suck. It's the same argument I saw back when school lunches were an argument, and it's, well, how hard is it to make a sandwich for your kid? You're assuming that every parent wants to take care of their kid. They don't. It's a massive assumption. Yeah. Yes. Because you take care of your child doesn't mean every parent does. Yeah. Kids go to school hungry because their parents are terrible people every fucking day. And yeah. school is supposed to be a Or safe just don't place. have the fucking resources. Exactly. Like, maybe you don't have fucking bread. Like that's exactly. that's real. And and the fact that free school lunches is a hot take. The fact that school lunch should be free when you're requiring students legally to go to school for eight hours a day, yes, you yes. should also fucking feed them. Why, sh- why wouldn't you feed them? What the fuck? It's, that shouldn't be a controversial wild. take. It's wild. That should not be oh. controversy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I hate it. Um, So things like that. I just feel like setting people up societally to make their own choices and become the best versions of themselves bothers me that that's still an argument i have to have (laughs) Mm. if that makes sense it makes perfect sense thank you for talking about that Mm -hmm. is there anything that you would like to say to the survivors that are listening or the or the ex-mormons that are listening? oh god yes come find me let's chat um but genuinely um for me the biggest thing is uh neither grief nor healing are linear and you're allowed to recover in whatever shape or style or uh, wibbly wobbly line that you need. Um, whether your healing journey is a circle or a triangle or just a knot of string, it doesn't matter. What matters is you know what you need and uh, <laughs> don't let people tell you just to get over it. Don't let people tell you, oh, it's time to move on. 
don't let yourself tell you that either because uh, it's not fair. It's not fair to you. Like I said, I didn't realize half of this trauma had happened to me for 10 years. And if I had tried to shut that down, I would be in such a worse place right now. So it sucks. Healing's timeline is sometimes uh, wild and raw and inconvenient. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need to happen. So, yeah. But seriously, Exmo is out there. Come find me. Come chat. Let's let's hang. Let's talk about some stuff. Uh, <laughs> I have so much more about that specifically. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for for joining me, for sharing so much of your life, of who you are and your experiences and, uh, and your insight. And thank you. Just thank you so much for being you and for creating the spaces that you do both in, in like the work that you do in the world. And then the, like the community that you've been building on Twitch is so wonderful. Like if, you know, if, if you haven't checked out Chaos Pixie Magic on Twitch, I really hope you will. Um, it's a beautiful place to be, and mm-hmm. it's it's such good vibes. I I just so deeply appreciate you, and uh, and I'm so honored that you would that you would join me. I love that this is like very much a is this like yeah. a Twitch thing? Like I, I don't I, even I know where so it started. Much. I don't know it. it either, but I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. But Jenna, I'm honored that you would ask. Uh, honestly, um, again, I've, I've gaslit myself into thinking for a long time, like I said, that my trauma isn't real or that doesn't deserve to be talked about and that I don't deserve to have a space to, to heal or talk because it, the other people have it worse kind of thing. Um, mm. so thank you for, we all do that also. Yeah, like I haven't that. met a survivor yet that hasn't done that. And it's, it's like, who it's is, ridiculous. who is this? who is this survivor that has had the worst yeah. like experience yep. that we are all looking to like, yeah. it's right. Just, for being I, like, do I have your permission to be sad? To be sad. <laughs> yes. I it's yeah, it matters. It matters. Yeah. It all matters. And it's all part of the same problem. And we can only start fixing it when we acknowledge that this matters and that it's fucked up and we need to yeah. fix it. Like, I just, yeah. 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 And, and that's a part of what we're doing here. And I'm so honored that you would, that you would come here and and do this this work for me because I know that this takes a lot of energy uh, as well. Worth this it takes a lot of spoons, and I appreciate <laughs> your spoons. Worth it, so yes. worth it. Awesome. <laughs> Yay! All right. Ah, oh, thank you so much, mm-hmm. and I hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you so much for listening. Please check episode notes to find Caitlin on Twitch as Chaos Pixie Magic to learn more about her many projects, and to find her books, The Map Weaver Chronicles. This is a call to action. Caitlin and her husband are in need of help. Caitlin is about to be laid off. They are struggling financially and behind on rent. They are trying to keep their housing, and any and all help is deeply appreciated. Please go and show her some love. You'll find donation links to her Ko-Fi and Patreon in episode notes as well. She is an incredible person, an extraordinary content creator, and she works so hard every day. Please help if you can. Season 4 Letters for the Fire Project is receiving submissions till the end of the year. Listeners are welcome to write a letter to their rapist or abuser, and I will read it during a special episode at the end of Season 4. If you'd like to learn more, 
You can listen to Season 3's Letters for the Fire episode and read the blog entry on the website to learn more about how to submit your letter and participate in the project. A huge shout-out to my Patreon members who make this whole shebangeranger possible. Sadanka, Emerald, Kathleen, Betty, and Sharanya. Thank you all so much. I am currently fundraising to afford a Descript subscription in order to make Finding Okay more accessible to the deaf, hearing-impaired, and neurodivergent communities by providing transcripts for episodes. This is the next big step for Finding Okay, and it will help me reach more survivors who are seeking support, and any and all help is appreciated. Come find me on Twitch for live streams and podcast Q&A sessions, where you can ask me anything. Become a Patreon member at various tiers to support the podcast and to gain access to bonus picks, audio, sneak peeks, and occasional early access and video episodes. The podcast is heading into a mid-season break that just happens to be left of the middle. There's another episode that's up in the air, but it's always been my plan to take a break in September and return in October. So no worries if you don't see new episodes dropping for a few weeks. It's all part of my master plan, and I will return in October with new personal episodes and new guests. You can stay updated by following me on Instagram. Please visit the podcast website, www.finding-ok.com. It's where you can find all the links to my social media. It's where you can learn more about me and all my guests. It's where you can read reviews, leave reviews, contact me. It's also where you can find links to donate. Finding OK is crowdfunded. It is listener support that is keeping the podcast alive. If only a handful of the people who listen to each episode donated one or two dollars, the podcast would be fully funded. If you can't afford to donate or become a member on Patreon, one of the best ways that you can support the show is by reviewing or sharing online or by word of mouth. Thank you again for listening. This has been Finding Okay. Black Lives Matter. Take care of yourself. Your heart is a muscle your fist, keep on loving, keep on pointing, and hold on, and hold on, hold on for your life.